Well, our series this last few weeks has been entitled Free to Be Me, and in all of our time together for the last few weekends, we've been moving toward today's theme, which is free at last. And could I just begin by asking you a question today? How free do you, how free do you feel to be who you really are? I mean, think about this for a moment. You kind of have an idea of who you are, but does anybody else know you? And maybe a better question would be, with whom do you feel free to be the person you are? There's an expression that we used to use a lot, and, and I can't use it much anymore for obvious reasons, but we used to call it letting our hair down. And uh, I don't have much to let down anymore, but who can you let your hair down around? I mean, who can you be the real authentic person? There is a principle that governs authenticity in our relationships with other people. And the principle goes something like this. To the extent that I feel secure around you, I can be authentic. To the extent that I can trust you to love me and care for me in spite of my flaws, that's the extent to which I can be authentic with you. Now, if you and I were perfect, and we, we, we were perfect in our appearance and had no issues, had no problems, didn't ever do anything wrong, have you ever thought about this? We could be authentic with everybody because what's not to love? If you're perfect and you don't have any problems, well, you can just go out there and be totally, totally free to be who you really are. But, you know, that kind of lets all of us out, doesn't it? Because we all have issues and we all have problems and we all have stuff that we're not proud of and we all think things that even astound ourselves sometimes. So therein lies the issue. Since I'm a, a flawed person with problems and issues and things that I'm ashamed of, before I can be authentic with you, I have to be pretty well assured of the fact that I'm secure with you, that you're going to be able to handle the problems that I have, the problems that I present, the costs that I incur in our relationship. So that's just the principle. And if you'll think about this, you tend to be authentic with the people that you feel a certain measure of security around. The more security you feel, the more authentic that you feel comfortable being. I learned this lesson probably in the early years of my pastorate because as I began to travel country and speak in, in, in high-profile conferences and seminaries, I would from time to time find myself around this sort of Christian superstar, this pastor or this conference speaker that I had looked up to, maybe read some of the writings or whatever, and I'm kind of in awe. And one of the things that I discovered, and it, it just happened with me, I, I don't know why necessarily, and it still happens to this day, that, you know, when that conference speaker was off and maybe in the front seat of the car with me driving to the airport or driving to the, to the conference center, I began to watch something happen as these, these high-profile characters would begin to just share things with me that I knew if I ever let it out, it, it would come back to bite this person. It would harm them. I mean, sometimes, you know, I've had great Christian leaders tell me, you know, in the quietness of, a, you know, of, of you know, sitting in the front seat of the car driving back or forth somewhere that they have big doubts about something, or maybe they would tell me something that they were dealing with. And when I would, you know, be in conversation with other friends who knew this individual, nothing like that would ever come up. And so I knew from that experience that this person had shared something with me, trusting me. And, and I've never quite understood exactly why that happens, but it happens to me again and again and again. And all I can figure out is that something about me, something about my personality or just some signal that I sent was that the information that person told me, they would be secure with it. And that's true. I don't like gossip. I don't, I, don't, I don't like to hear gossip. I don't like to tell gossip. And somehow that must have gotten across that they could tell me this, and it wouldn't go any further. And, you know, I, I'm just that way. I, I don't like saying bad things about people. It, 
It, it just, you know, whenever I hear something bad about somebody else, it makes me sick to my stomach. I'm not anxious to run out and tell it. We all know what it's like to feel insecure around somebody that we know can't be trusted to handle something that's going wrong in our lives. Pastors, I, maybe that's just the culture that I run with, but pastors can be gossips. The old story is about three, three pastors who on their day off were out in a boat doing some fishing a long way away from the shore. No fish were biting, so after a while, one of the guys decided it'd be good for them to start sharing maybe some, some things about themselves that weren't good, that maybe they need to have kind of a little accountability group. And so one guy said, hey, I think we need to be candid and open about these things. He said, I, I'm going to tell you guys what my besetting sin is. He said, you know, I know we shouldn't drink, but if I'm really under a lot of stress, I may pick up a few beers and, you know, hide it and drink it. And after a few moments, the other, second guy said, well, you know, since you told me your besetting sin, let me tell you mine. He said, I have a real problem with temper. I know Christians are not supposed to say bad words, but every once in a while I get really mad and let out a stream of curse words. And the third guy didn't say anything, just quiet. And it was kind of freaking the other two out. And after a while, one of them said, aren't you going to tell us what your besetting sin is? And he said, yeah, my besetting sin is gossip, and I can't wait to get back to town. <laughs> so we all know what that insecurity feels like. And so we, we, we are secure, we, we, are, we are authentic where we feel security. And the more security we feel, the more authentic we are because we know that person can handle our issues. And I think if you'll consider this with, with me for a moment, you'll see these relationships unfold in your life. For instance, uh, how many of you have people in your life that you're comfortable going to lunch with? You can spend 45 minutes, an hour with this person, and you feel like that relationship is safe enough that you can go to lunch with. Most of us have just about everybody on that list. You go to lunch with someone, you can talk, you can keep it, you know, you can keep it on a high enough level. It really doesn't get personal. I have a test that I employ, and it's called the golf test. Who would I play golf with? Because golf takes four hours. You know, if I'm playing golf with somebody, and by the way, not everything that happens on a golf course is pleasant, you know? There are bad shots. And so I have to feel a certain security. Now, if you ever call me and ask me to play golf, and I say no, it's not because I don't trust you. It's just as hard for me to find an afternoon to play golf. But I, I do employ that test. Do I feel secure enough for this person to play golf? What, how, how many people are on your list that you would feel secure enough to invite to your home to spend a week? Where maybe they, they sort of lived in your home and watched what you did and how you handled situations and saw you when you're off and not dressed up for the office or dressed up for some sort of social function. How many people would be on that list? My guess is that list is getting real small. But let me ask you this question. Who's on your list that you could sit in the front seat of a car with all the windows up and the doors locked and you could tell that person every bad thing you've ever done, every thought that you've had that's unpleasant, every weakness in your life, the things about yourself that embarrass you, who do you have in your life that you could sit down with and tell everything about yourself and know that you're not in any jeopardy at all, that that person's going to smile at you and not discount your worth and not say, I think less of you because you shared that with me? Who's on your list that you could tell everything about yourself totally free and, and tell everything about who you are and what you think and where you've been and what you've done and know that that person's going to love you as much as he or she ever did? If you find that person, if you could find that person, would you not agree with me that around that individual, you would be totally free to be who you are? You could be absolutely, totally authentic. You could live in complete freedom because you would know there is nothing about you that he or she could find out that would cause that person to think less of you. You've already established that thresh threshold of unconditional love. Very hard to find that person, isn't it? Very hard to even find that person to marry because I think that's what we're looking for when we look for a soulmate. But I've been sharing with you for the last four weekends 
that there is a person in your life that you can tell everything about yourself, every thought you've ever had, every embarrassing secret, and he's going to love you as much as he ever did and never change, and that person is God. And the reason why I, I emphasize that relationship today, it's this. Considering that God has all power and your complete future in his control, if you can be totally free to be yourself around him, I'm not trying to insult anybody, but does anybody else really matter? If you can be totally free around God, then in effect, you can be absolutely authentic because God will love you no matter what. Now somebody could say, well, Mark, you've laid out a pretty good case in the last four weekends that God has dealt with our past. The dark side that we were born with, the issues of our past, we saw in Romans 8, chapter 1, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, that there is no condemnation for those who accept Jesus Christ. So you can say, well, okay, Mark, I'm okay with that. I, I think God can handle my past, the things that have happened in my past. But what about my future? How can I know that nothing that happens to me in between the moment that we are here today and the moment that I die, that nothing is going to strain or change that relationship? Well, there are three questions that you and I would have to ask to know the answer to that with complete certainty. And the reason why I think it's very important to ask these questions is I do run into people every once in a while who tell me, well, you can lose your salvation. In effect, what they're saying is you can have some breakage between you and God. And, and those people are many times well-intentioned people, but they ask the wrong questions. Today, we're going to ask the right questions. What are the three questions that you would have to have answered to know whether or not you and God are going to be in an eternal relationship and everything is going to be okay? First question that you would have to ask is, how does God feel about me? Is God for me or is he against me? You know, when people are for you, you can have a whole lot of problems in your life and they will interpret it in the best possible light. On the other hand, if you ever get someone who is against you, and that happens to all of us from time to time, right? Someone gets it in for you. They'll interpret all kinds of things in your life in the most negative light, even innocuous things, things that, where there's no malevolence intended. But if somebody's really out to get you, they will nitpick you and find fault and try to bring you down. And they'll find issues, not that there are any legitimacy to those issues, it's just that they want to destroy you. So how is God about that? I mean, is God for us or is God against us? Or is God just neutral about us? In 1948, Harry Truman was running for president, and uh, he was he, this would be his first full term. Of course, you know, he became president. He was vice president of Roosevelt. When Roosevelt died, Truman became president. And he had made some decisions that he kind of alienated certain parts of the country, especially the South. And there had been a slogan about Harry Truman, you know, we're just wild about Harry. But some of the southern states were unhappy, and when their, when their, you know, when, when their representatives went to the Democratic Convention in 1948, they held up a sign that said, we're just mild about Harry. And maybe some of us think that God is just mild about us. And maybe he likes us, maybe he doesn't like us. Maybe he's going to just kind of hang back and see how we pan out. And if he's for us or whatever, we do enough that God's for us, it's going to be okay. So that's the first question that we have to resolve. Is God for us? Is he against us? Is he sort of neutral about us? That's question number one. Here's question number two. Is there some indictment out there hanging over my head that's going to come back to bite me? Is there something that I've done or will do? I mean, I know that God's forgiven me of all my sin, but here's the thing. Even though you and I are forgiven, we know we still sin, right? So maybe in between the moment that I get saved and the moment that I die, I'm going to do something, and I'm going to get to heaven, and all of a sudden I'm going to think I'm going to heaven, I'm going to get there, and I'm going to find out that there's some indictment out there that's going to come down and get me in a lot of trouble. The third question is, is there anything that would cause God to stop loving me? How many of us have had friendships and relationships, and there were people we thought would always be in our corner? 
We thought they would always love us no matter what. Maybe you were married to this person. And you thought, you said to yourself, this person will always be my friend. Because he said, I love you. She said, I love you. He said, it was forever. She said, always friends. But something happened. Things happen, people change. So maybe that's how it'll be with God. Maybe God feels good about me today. Maybe God is for me today. But somewhere out there in the future, maybe there's something that could happen. Maybe I could really screw things up in the worst possible way, and God would say, I don't love you anymore. Wouldn't you agree those are the three questions that have to be asked? Is God for me? Is God against me? Is there some indictment out there hanging over my head that will come back to get me? Or is there anything that would cause God to stop loving me? Well, in my favorite chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 8, we're going to bring it in for a landing. We're going to look at the last verses of Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to tell you God answers all three questions in the most dramatic, awesome fashion. Get ready for some real good news. You know, I know you came today and you fought the snowstorm and everything to be here, but I want to tell you what, there is some awesome news that you're in store for this morning. So get ready to smile, get ready to enjoy yourself, get ready to celebrate your relationship with God. Because I'm going to tell you, when this service is over, if you choose, and that's a big if, if you choose, you can be totally free to be who you are. Here is number one. Is God for me or is God against me? If, is God looking for reasons to destroy me? Is he looking for reasons to bless me? Is he just neutral about me waiting to see how things shake out? Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? That's the question. Is God for me? Now, make this personal right now. You know, don't just do this in a generic sense and think about all mankind, six billion people on the planet. Make this very personal. Think about yourself. Think about you. And ask yourself, is God for me? Is God pulling for me? Is he, is he wanting the best for me? Is he looking for a reason to bless me? Or is he against me? Well, if the answer had just come back, yes, that'd be sweet. And it could. Several times in the Bible, I'm thinking about Psalm 56, 9, for instance, when David was writing a psalm about his experience. At that particular moment, a lot of things were going south in David's life. People were out to get him. A lot of situations, he didn't know how they were going to resolve. But when he was writing the 56th Psalm and all these uncertainty, uncertainties and insecurities in his life, David came to verse 9 and he wrote these words, This I know. In effect, he was saying, There's so much I don't know, but there's one thing I do know. God is for me. Time and time again, the Bible just says that. God is for us. So if, when this question is posed in Romans chapter 8, is God for us, if God had just come back and said, Yes, I'm for you, that'd be great. But it's so much better than that. The answer comes back in, in this verse as if God, and this is in verse 32, it's as if God is saying, think with me, think with me. Because he doesn't just want you to know that he's for you, he wants you to know how for you he is. Now, I, I would believe that I'm friends with every person here today, and I hope you know that I'm for you. But let's just, let's, let's grade this, let's scale this a little bit. With all of us, you know, in our relationships, when we're for someone, if that person doesn't have any cost, if that person doesn't cost us anything, then we can be for that person, we can kind of be, you know, for the whole world on that basis. But if I'm for you and you start costing me, you're going to find out how for you I am, right? For instance, if my relationship with you winds up costing me $100, and I say, all right, I, I love her, I love him, 
and it's going to hurt a little bit, but I'm going to find $100 and bail you out of jail or, or buy you whatever you need. I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. I'm going to step up to the plate. Now, here's the thing. You can, you can evaluate our relationship. If I am for you enough that it's $100, you know that $10 is no problem, right? Or $20, because I've already established that our relationship, in our relationship, I'm for you that much. Let's say that it got bigger than that. And being for you would cost my life savings, which isn't very big, but it's bigger than $100. And so if, if I said, all right, I'm for you so much that I'll just empty my life savings and take care of you, you would know that $100 is no problem. If, on the other hand, being for you meant that I would have to give up my house, and I would say, I'm so much for you, I'll give up my house, then you would know my life savings was no problem. If, and I don't know that I love anybody this much. If I loved you enough to give up one of my three sons, you would know that the house and my life savings and $100 is no problem for me. If I loved you enough to give up one of my sons, you would know there is nothing really that I would withhold from you. So when God asks in Romans chapter 8, when the Bible asks, is God for us? Look at how the answer comes back in verse 32. Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? When you want to know is God for you, it's how for you he is that God comes back to answer. God is so for you that he was willing to give up that which meant more to him than anything else. And the, the logic here goes from the greater to the lesser. If God was willing to give up his son, he's going to give all the riches of heaven to you. So yes, God is for you. I want to encourage you to go somewhere today where maybe you can talk and nobody else will hear you. I just want you to go somewhere today and say it out loud. God is for me. I mean, you may get to a situation in life where you're not sure that anybody's for you. The boss is unhappy with you. The people who work under you don't think that you're a good leader. Your wife or husband is angry at you and feeling like maybe they married the wrong person. Your kids are telling you that you're not a good parent. Even the dog is growling at you. But when you have that kind of day, you can just say, I know one thing. I know God is for me. And I know how for me he is that he was willing to give a son. Question number two, and this is big for me, because the question is, is there something out there in the future that I might do that may come back to bite me, and I think I'm saved, and I'm and waiting for the rapture to happen, or when I die, and, but when I get to heaven, it's like I stand before God, and God is saying, Mark, you know, really, you were really doing pretty well there for a while, but something came up. Have you ever had that happen? You're in an interview, and you think you got the job, and your supervisor said, mm, something's come up. You know, we were looking at your resume. I was reading a review, and you had a bad, there's one thing that came up on a bad review last February, and you're not going to get the job. Wouldn't it be terrible to get to heaven and think that you're going to stay there only to have God say, we've been checking the records, and something came up. Let's look at this. Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? Now, my dear friends who think that you can lose your salvation are asking the wrong question because they're, they're, they're back there thinking about that thing that might come up, that sin that you may do out there in the future or that, that lapse of spiritual judgment that you may have out there in the future. What is so cool about this question, notice that God does not ask, what thing is there out there that might come up that may come back to bite you? The question is different. It is who can bring a charge against you? It's not what may come up. It is who is able to bring any charge against you. 
Now, why is that significant? You say, Mark, why are you going off on that? Well, Jesus found himself in the middle of a story in John chapter 8 that explains all this to us. There was a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. Now, the law was very clear on this. The Jewish law was very clear that that was a a capital offense, punished by the form of execution for the Jews, which was stoning. And so this woman who was caught in the very act was grabbed, picked up, hustled over to Jesus, and thrown at his feet. And this religious crowd, they had no interest in the woman. They really had no interest in the law. They were just trying to trap Jesus because they were going to say, Moses in the law says, stone her. What do you say? And if Jesus had said, let her go, they would have said, well, you don't have any respect for the law. On the other hand, if he said, stone her, they would say, well, he, he doesn't care about people and he's not the loving person that he claims to be. So they thought they had him whichever way he went. Now, remember the question is, who has a right to bring a charge against you? They throw this woman at Jesus' feet. Notice that Jesus did not say she didn't commit adultery because obviously she'd been caught in the act. Nor did he say that she did not deserve to be stoned. But here's what he said. He went right back to this question from Romans 8. Who has the right to bring a charge? He said, the person here who's never sinned needs to throw the first rock. And with that one statement, and whatever it was that Jesus wrote on the ground in the sand, the whole crowd dispersed. Jesus said to her, woman, where are your accusers? And she said, they've all gone home. And Jesus said, well, I'm not going to condemn you either, but go and be free to live a different kind of life. Now, that's the question that the Bible is posing in Romans chapter 8. Who has the right to accuse you in the throne of God, in the court of heaven? Now, first off, we know that anybody who has sinned cannot accuse you. That lets all of us out, right? I can't accuse you. You can't accuse me. Your worst enemy cannot bring any accusation against you in heaven because if you have sin, you can't bring an accusation into the court of heaven. Satan hates you. But he's out of luck, too, because he sinned before this thing ever got up and cooking. Before God ever made a world, he sinned. So he can't level any charge in heaven. There are only two people. There are only two people who can bring any accusation against you about anything that you've ever done. One is God, and the other is Jesus Christ, and especially Jesus, because he did come and live in human flesh like you and me, but he never sinned. So now the Bible is going to answer the question, and notice that it's going to reference how God feels about you and how Jesus feels about you, because they're the only two who could bring up any accusation against you when you stand before God. Romans 8, verse 33, who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus Number one, died for us. Number two, was raised to life for us. And number three, he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. When you stand trial in heaven, when you stand before God, God is the judge. No jury trial here. And Jesus is going to be there too. Now, here's what's exciting about this. The Bible says God's not going to bring up any accusation against you because it's been his plan from the very beginning to give you a right standing from him. So there's the judge. He's for you. And what about Jesus? He's your defense attorney. The Bible says he's standing there pleading your case. No wonder the Bible says nobody is ever going to bring up any indictment against you. Well, that's question number one. How does God feel about us? He's for us. Question number two, could there be any indictment against us hanging out there? And the answer is no, because even if somebody hated you enough to charge you when they got to heaven, no sinner could do it. Only God or Jesus. God's the judge who's already made you have a right standing with him, and Jesus is your defense attorney. Question number three, is there anything 
Is there anything in the future that could make God stop loving you? Bad things happen. People do wrong things. You and I could do something really, really bad out there. Is there anything that could cause God to stop loving us? Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 35. There's the question. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Paul reframes the question. I'm thankful that he did in Romans 8, verse 35. He says, does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted? Hey, you know, you and I can have enough trouble in life. We can wonder if God still loves us. Is God mad at us because we have trouble? Is God angry? Does he not love us anymore because we have calamity or somebody gets it in for us or we're hungry, we don't have enough food to eat, we lose our house or we lose our job and we're threatened with danger? And the answer comes back, no, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, we're going to end the chapter here in, in, in verse 38. I think it's the, the, the greatest paragraph in all the Bible. Paul writes, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Let me read that two more times with different inflection. I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Well, convinced is a strong term, isn't it? But it's even stronger when you, anticipate, or when you consider this. What did Paul do before he was saved? He was a lawyer and a great one, maybe the best one in the country. It was his responsibility to bring cases in the court of law. When all the evidence was heard, and there was no question about it, there was a verdict. And this is the word that Paul uses in the Greek language. He said, I have watched all the evidence, I reviewed all the evidence, and I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. And now he itemizes the bill. He begins to talk about various things that people think maybe could separate them from the love of God. Somebody could be here today and say, Mark, I think God loves me, but man, when I die, who knows what's going to happen? The Bible says in Romans 8, verse 38, neither death or life. In fact, death won't separate you from God. Death will bring you close to God. It'll bring you together with God. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So death may separate you from your family, may separate you from your job, may separate you from your physical body, but it cannot separate you from the love of God. I don't fear death. I'll tell you what I do fear. In the culture that you and I live in, I fear living too long. I mean, thankfully we have great health care, and some of that has created some, some issues for us. Because I think sometimes people live past the point where life is good, and that could happen for all of us. It may happen to you, it may happen to me. That's what I fear much more than dying. But you know what? If somehow that happens, and you're trapped in a body, and maybe you're in a nursing home, and Maybe your kids don't come to see you, and maybe no one, maybe everybody else has forgotten about you. If you wind up in that environment, just remember this, it cannot separate you from the love of God. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, verse 38. I love verse, this part. Neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Whatever's hassling you today, making you have a hard time listening to this message, because you're so worried about it, what's going on right now, that doesn't separate you from God's love. You may have a real problem in your life, but you can say, I know God loves me even with my problem. You may be worried about the future. Maybe you're worried if you're going to have a job next year, worried if you're going to be able to pay your bills. That's not going to separate you from God's love. Not your worries about today or your fears about tomorrow can separate you from the love of God. And in this awesome ending into the chapter, he says, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's the Bible telling us? 
The Bible's telling us that you found that person that you can be totally free around because nothing is ever going to change how he feels about you. He's for you. He's not going to let anything come back to bite you from your past or anything that you might do. And nothing you ever do or ever will do or that ever happens to you, nothing can ever separate you from his love. I know that whenever ministers like myself talk about such things, there are those maybe who are a little fearful who've come against that and they say, well, I just don't think ministers should talk about those kinds of things. Because if people are led to believe that God loves them no matter what, then they'll go out and say, hey, I'll just, I won't care about how I live. I think it's just the very opposite. I think when people don't care about how they live, it's because they've come to believe that they can't please God no matter what. Why try? I teased you on Christmas Eve about being on a diet. I'm always on a diet. You know when I do real well on a diet? When I believe it's working. When it's not working, I don't think it's working, uh, why try? Bring on the potato salad and chocolate ice cream. What's the use of trying? And that's why people don't live godly lives, is they just don't believe that they can please God. They're not sure that God does feel good about them. It is that knowledge that you're secure in your relationship with God that just says, hey, I want to be free to be the person God destined me to be. I was listening to a story that uh, Anderson Cooper told on 360. A guy named Wilfredo Garza, for 35 years, lived the life of an illegal alien. He swam across the Rio Grande, came to Texas, tried to eke out a living. If there was work, he worked. If there was no work, he didn't work. But all the time, he was looking over his shoulder, waiting for immigration officials or Border Patrol to catch up with him. And four times they did. They put him on a bus and bust him back across the border and sent him to Mexico. And each, each time, he swam back across the Rio Grande. And after getting tired of living this, one day he just decided to give it all up and take the risks, and he walked into the office of an immigration lawyer, and he told his story, and that's when things got interesting. Because it seems that Wilfredo Garza's dad was born in Texas, and beside being born in Texas, had a work history in the United States. And all this time, when Wilfredo Garza had been swimming across the Rio Grande and ducking immigration officials, he had in his possession two very precious documents. He had his dad's birth certificate that showed he was born in Texas and his dad's work records. It was just a real simple matter for the immigration official to get in Wilfredo Garza's hands his own documentation of citizenship. And as Cooper closed out the piece on CNN, he said, he doesn't have to swim across the Rio Grande anymore. He can walk through the gate. That's how it is for you. You don't have to duck God. You don't have to run from God and feel bad about you not being the person that you want to be. You can walk in the gate. If you have received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've invited him into your heart and life, you can walk through the door because you're God's child, and he's for you. And he's not going to bring up something from your past to slam you when you stand before God. And there's not a thing in the world you can ever do or that anybody can ever do that will cut you free or cut you loose from God's love. I say let's be free to who, be who God called us to be. Let's be who God, I mean, you say, Mark, I'm unhappy with myself. I'm unhappy with myself too, but I'll tell you what, God's at work in my life, and every day brings me one step closer to being like Jesus. Would you just bow your head with me, please, for a moment? I could be talking to somebody, and you say, well, Mark, I love that kind of relationship. How do I get it? Do I join your church? 
hey, I love this church like I love my life, but I can tell you one thing, this church can't get you out of Sedgwick County when you die or Butler County or whichever county you live in. You say, well, I need to be baptized. Baptism is very important. It's a symbol. Baptism can't get you in this kind of relationship. Being a Baptist or a Catholic or a Methodist or Nazarene or anything else won't get you in this kind of relationship. What you got to know to be in a relationship like I discussed this morning is you just got to know how much God wants you to be in that relationship. If you just knew how much God wants to share this with you. God made it so that it was a gift. The Bible says, by grace you're saved through believing. It's not of yourselves. The Bible says this, it is the gift of God. God loved the world, John 3, 16, so much. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. It is a gift. Now, if I give you a gift and you have to do something to get it, it's not a gift anymore. It's a bribe. God doesn't bribe anybody into heaven. If there's strings attached to a gift, it's not a gift. God wants you in this relationship so much that he just cleared the table and said it's a gift. All you got to do is tell me yes. Yes.